Welcome to Disrupting Japan. Straight talk from Japan's most successful entrepreneurs. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for joining me. One of the most common themes on Disrupting Japan is the intersection of tradition and high technology. Stories about what things that we have known and loved for generations can teach us about how we should use technology today. Now, I'm not sure how much of this is due to the fact that I personally find such startups fascinating and important, and how much of it is due to the fact that there's something about Japanese startups and Japanese culture that encourages and appreciates these kind of innovations. Well, today we sit down with Machi Takahashi of Strolly, and we discuss that. While mobile GPS mapping is is awesome, there's something important that we've lost in our rapid adoption of that technology, and it's something that Strolly is bringing back. We also look into how COVID is not only changing things, but changing some things for the better, and how this is really a time for innovative startups to shine. And we also talk in some detail about the challenges women founders face in Japan, and some simple ways to improve the situation. But you know, Machi tells that story much better than I can. So let's get right to the interview. I'm sitting here with Machi Takahashi, the CEO of Strolly. So thanks for sitting down with me. Thank you, Tim, for having me. Strolly makes. Custom maps that are, that are overlaid onto to Google Maps, but I, I think you can explain it a lot a lot better than I can. So, why don't you explain briefly what Strolly is, how it works? Okay, sure. So, Strolly is our company name and also a name of our service, and it means to stroll with story. So, we came up with this idea to combine illustrated maps with GPS positioning while we were developing a new guide system for a theme park. And instead of choosing Google Maps, we chose to use this uh, beautiful hand-drawn illustrated map of this theme park, and we came up with this technology to combine these latitude and longitude on top of these illustrated maps. Okay, so so when people are visiting the theme park. Instead of looking at Google Maps or Apple Maps as they're wandering around the park, they would look at those kind of cute hand-drawn, illustrated maps, and they they'd navigate on top of that. Right, exactly. So we have this technology where we can adapt these GPS positioning on top of any kind of map in any form, so people can actually exaggerate some of the spots in the map. And not actually draw some of the spots in the map. Are, are most of your customers in tourism and entertainment? Uh, yes, uh, most of them are in the tourism, and also uh, some of them are in transportation and also in the area development. Well, our platform is open, so you can start free, and people can upload their maps themselves. So a lot of people who upload their maps themselves are not necessarily business customers. So they could be just、uh, some community leaders who want to show like great things about their cities. But some 
for the business users, it's mostly in a travel uh, area. So you mentioned people can upload their own maps. How how difficult is this system to use? Does it require a... No, it's very easy. Uh, even uh, some people who work for, I don't know, like library. <laughs> I shouldn't say that, but... Non-programmers, just... <laughs> non-programmers. Non-programmers, yeah, that's right. 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 Exactly. So it's very easy. People who draw their maps, they can upload the image of the map and they would have this... Um, correlation of positions on top of these maps like so they would put some dots on the map and slowly to show all the other places with gps positioning oh i see so they, they would kind of like pin a few key points and then strolly would sort of interpolate all the others and so people can see their position on on the cute illustrated map exactly and so far, you mentioned a few cases of the of the people creating their own maps. I mean, what what are they? What kind of maps are they uploading? During this COVID nineteen, people actually suddenly started realizing how important their local business is. Some designers uh, started drawing their own city or their own neighborhood uh, with the restaurant or the food stands where you can take your food out. So some maps were made to empower these local communities or local business. Wow. Mm -hmm. That's something we didn't see before this COVID-19. So that was quite interesting. So from the consumer side, the user side, it's just a chance to feel, I don't know, more connected or, or less standard more special is is that the i think so because if you imagine like moving into a new town and you have this map that shows like how these small businesses are doing around your neighborhood or like these attractive places small places where you if you go into just one alley down then you would find them then it just makes your life so much richer and more interesting. You know, it, it, it is interesting because the the kind of the tourism maps, those illustrated maps, in a sense, they served a really different purpose. Yeah, so, it does. Like Google Maps has replaced a lot of the um, kind of the street maps that used to be for sale at every gas station in the world. and But... In, in tourism, they, they never would use a street map. They always would use these kind of illustrated, fun, engaging maps. So there's there's definitely something there. Yeah, I think so. These maps has uh, their own points of views. It kind of sets up the um, context of the city. This kind of viewpoint, you would start to see different things in the city. So So how do you get users onto the app? How do you get users using Strolly? How do they find out about it? Our service is not an app. It's a web-based uh, service. So these maps actually work on, on the websites. We encourage these paper map creators to put a little QR code on their paper map so that people can actually read it. And they can start immediately with their browser on their phones. So... This is like really cool technology. Um, just, just it's it's fun. But what's what's your business model on it? How do you make money? We have this B two B service. 
if you're using Strolly for business, you obviously want to put your brand on top of these maps. And we help them put their logos on their maps. And we also unlock the foot and travel data, how these maps are used. Okay, so you've got a, a kind of data collection, data analytics component to this as well. Uh, yes, the users, they have their GPS positioning on while they're using our map. And we have analytical data of how people tend to use these maps. From your customer's point of view, do they do they view the main value of Strolly as being the, the presentation, the ability to show these lovely kind of illustrated maps? Or do they see the main value coming from those data analytics? I think the first value comes from presentation of it, yeah. Because you cannot control how Google Maps would look. Well, yeah, everything kind of looks, everything looks the same on Google Maps or Apple Maps, right? It just, everywhere in the world has the same presentation and and that's useful too, Mm -hmm. but it's not good for branding. Right, right, exactly. First, it's the presentation. And nowadays, uh, because of COVID-19, users cannot come to their park or cannot come to the areas or yeah that is something i wanted to ask you about since since your your business is so focused on tourism covid-19 must have had a huge impact on on your business and your startup yeah it did well it kind of hit directly to our clients and we were actually planning to have a lot of things coming up for the the olympics and paralympics of course all these got canceled and uh, we had to pivot our service so that we can help our clients stay connected with their users. How, how do you do that? Because I mean, Maps is such a, uh, you know, it's know. such a, a <laughs> location. I, I can't think thing. of anything that is more directly like <laughs> being there, right? I know. <laughs> but the thing is, like we said, strolling maps are more about like branding or like just communicating how great the place can be to the users. So uh, what we did was that we've created this virtual map service where people can actually come into the map with an avatar. And there's a tour guide who is standing in the map uh, showing around how the park looks like. And it actually, we had this uh, one experiment with a theme park already the same theme park and uh, they've filmed the movie in the theme park so that this guide person of this virtual map can show around where these these film was uh, taking and a lot of people actually applied to participate in the in the virtual tour and they like enjoyed it very much and they the comments from the users was very positive they all said they wanted to actually come to the theme park after this COVID-19 is gone. It was a, I think it was a great success. It is interesting how, well, I mean, crisis always brings out innovation. Right. <laughs> and, and something like the, the theme parks, and it's something they might never have tried without COVID. Mm-hmm. Exactly. What is that? Let me ask you, is that just uh, like a one-off creative idea by one customer or do you see this as as a trend is this something that's happening 
these kind of virtual tours? Oh, is I that think happening? it's happening everywhere. Even when the COVID-19 is gone, we still have to have some kind of virtual tour, keep the users more engaged to the place. And also great for planning and also for... Mm-hmm. So, so you think that even after COVID-19 is, is over and the world returns to something like normal, these kind of virtual tours are going to continue? I think so, yeah. It's going to be more... I think it's going to be more mature. It's going to get much more exciting and fun. <laughs> and also encourage people to go to the real place if you have a good virtual tour. Excellent. Well, that's really, I mean... Yeah, we had this idea of having this virtual tour before COVID, but we never implemented it because there was no needs from our clients. <laughs> yeah, there was no demand for no, it, no, right? No, no, yeah. no, no, but And we suggested it in beforehand as well, but nobody really cared about it. <laughs> now it's more like a popular thing. Yeah, I mean, innovations and new ideas are always coming from the startup side. So I'm glad to hear that you guys are pivoting and not only pivoting, but you're actually kind of changing the industry for the the better that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Hey, listen, let's, let's talk a bit about you. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Before you started Strolly, you were a president of ATR creative for, for a long time. You were making like human robot interface type work. Mm-hmm. Yes. So Strolly was originally a part of this uh, research institute called Advanced Telecommunications Research Institute in Kyoto. And they had some subsidiary companies and ATR Creative was one of them. And what we did in this company was to transfer the basic technologies into commercial-based service or business. And some of them completely failed. Research yeah, especially with new business. technology. Right so, right. so was Strolly something that came out of this or was Strolly something completely different that you started? Uh, we had this AI lab in this research institute where we had this recommendation system and we were turning this into a guide system in a museum. And we were s- starting to sell that. And one of our client happened to be not a museum, but a theme park. And that's how we came up with the idea of Strolly. As we were turning it into a web service, we, we needed more investment. And o- we also needed more uh, freedom to hire people and to do a lot of things outside of ATR. So you spun it out into a separate venture company. Mm -hmm. So we've uh, bought up the company in 2016 ourselves and became independent. You know, that's interesting. I've talked with a number of startup founders. I mean, corporate spinouts are hard. Yeah, it is. It's, (laughs) It's, but the thing I find most mysterious about this the corporate spinouts that are more traditional, that you just basically have this, oh, I don't know, like this business unit that gets spun out and they're never profitable and they're just like employing, they, there is no real reason to spin them out. Those tend to be successful and kept on the balance sheet for decades. 
but but the truly successful startups, once things start taking off, it, it seems like the parent company is is more than happy to sell those startups to the the management team. <laughs> Which it just I don't understand that because it. it <laughs> Do you know what I mean? It's like, wow, we've got something. It's working. There's interest. Let's sell it now before it takes off. Right. Why? Uh, wh- why? Why? Why did they want to sell? I think they 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 realized that there's a lot of risk to really like grow. In my case, it's it was not a company, but it's more like like research institute. So it's more like university academia uh, type of place. So they they didn't really have an interest in managing a company of any type. Yeah, they really wanted some of their research ideas to grow and expand. But uh, we also realized that we couldn't do it within the research company because we were so good at doing zero to one, and also maybe one to. Something, <laughs> but uh, to go like from like ten to one hundred, it's it's just not. You know this this is interesting because Japan is really really good at at core research, mm-hmm. uh, at fundamental research. There's just amazing stuff going on, but there's a real challenge in commercializing it and productizing it and turning this research into meaningful companies. Right. And, and do you think this kind of model is is something that like ATR is going to do in the future or similar uh, <laughs> companies will do in the future where they try to like spin off little companies? I, I think so. I felt that it's really, really hard for researchers to become best friends with these business people. <laughs> <laughs> he said it's very important to get the two together, but it's I know, very I know. difficult. It's very difficult. <laughs> With our team, my co-founder is actually, he used to be a researcher, but he really opened up to to the business world. And I also was looking for some kind of business person who could take our research to like big business, but I couldn't find anyone. Like it was so hard to find somebody with the same level of passion with same level of knowledge and same the business people who came to our labs were only into business and not really into what do you call like uh, invention is really important for us and also there's like innovation people who come from this innovation world they don't care so much about invention sometimes. <laughs> what's no those those are two explain the difference between those two. And what's the difference between invention and innovation? Innovation is something that really accelerates making innovation into business. And some people actually do invention while innovating something. But we came with the invention first, so it was uh, really hard to get this invention, get into this um, cycle of innovation. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, so invention is just coming up with a new idea, whereas innovation is is 
doing something useful with that idea, bringing that idea into the world. Mm-hmm. And it is so much harder than the yeah, invention. Yeah, it is. But also, um, invention is also very hard because I, I worked in the research institute. I, I understand how hard it is to invent something that is so unique that doesn't exist in the rest of the world. Actually, sometimes that kind of invention can be the most difficult thing to turn into innovation. Uh, totally, yeah. Because something that's brand new that people <laughs> just don't know what to do with, it's very hard to convince people to try it. Definitely. So first time when we came up with the idea of even just turning illustrated maps into digital, like a lot of people from this business side told us that, oh, but who's going to use it and who's going to pay for it and what's the business model? So we had to start proving ourselves that, that it works and some, there's demand for it. So that's how we had to become independent from research lab because we had to do this innovation part ourselves. Right. So did the core team all come from the research lab or was it some from outside and some from the labs? Uh, some, some people came from the lab and some people came from outside. And when we became independent from ATR, uh, the first thing I did was to ask some people from the business side to join our company so that we can actually start turning this into like a real business model. All right. Hey, I also want to ask you about the situation of women founders in Japan, because I know you're, you're very active in the space. You run the Japan chapter of WISE24 and um, are very supportive of women founders. So what are some of the challenges that, that women founders face in Japan? Women founders in Japan in information technology field is very, very small. We have very few of us. That's why we have little access to funding and also for ecosystem in in general. So why aren't there more women entrepreneurs in Japan? I want to ask you. (laughs) (laughs) You ask me. Um, I'm not sure. I mean, it it is. I mean, the numbers do bear it out, uh, even compared with the rest of Asia. Um, there is a much smaller percentage of uh, women founders in Japan. Um, there's a much smaller percentage of women uh, who say they want to be startup founders in Japan. Right. And uh, I'm not sure. I don't, I don't have a good answer. <laughs> I don't um, have a good answer either. But <laughs> I have this feeling that it's not that I think women are not used to taking this um, chance to scale. You know what I mean? You, you mean just that, do you think women are reluctant to like be in leadership roles or? I think women are so used to working as like a back behind and not in the front. When they are asked to go front, they just go, oh, no, 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 no. I'm not like, I'm not worthy of it or I'm not ready for it. And once you're in front, then you get used to it and you start to feel like you're the one who's taking the leadership or you're the one who's in control of this place. But but a lot of 
people don't take that as like a good opportunity to do so. Do you think the biggest problems are internal, uh, the way women think about themselves, or are they external, um, the way, say, VCs think about women founders or things like that? Um, I think it's both ways because there's not enough women founders to actually visit VCs. I don't think VCs care so much about it now. But uh, at the same time, there are, it's about having diversity anywhere in the society. In Japan, it's the elder men who tend to be in a higher position. So not, not, not only women, but also younger people don't want to take their chance so much in that kind of cultures. Yeah, I, I know what you mean, but I, th- I think in Japan there is uh, there's kind of a, a image of a typical Japanese founder, right? And they're always men, late 20s, early 30s, Mm-mm. went to good school, mm. dresses very casually, mm. <laughs> speaks English. Mm-hmm. And, and that's kind of the image everyone has of a founder. Mm-mm-mm. And so, yeah, the women founder just don't fit into that uh, they don't fit into the image and they're not in that community either so okay so one thing is that women they differ but also uh, they just simply don't have access to the to the information because they're not part of the community this is one experience that i had when i became a ceo of this company and i was asked to go to this female founders community event. And these uh, people who were there were all running small, medium businesses, like running uh, a store. Family business. Family business, pancake shop or things like that. So if that's the community that you think that you belong to, then you never have access to VCs or you never have the idea of turning your business into something as a startup instead of uh, doing a small business. Yeah. So actually a number of women founders, a number of my friends who are women founders uh, and who've been on the show have mentioned that they're very skeptical of a lot of the women founders programs and support systems in Japan saying they find it kind of, mm. I don't know, patronizing. Like they'll, they'll talk about uh, how women should do startups focused on cosmetics or fashion. Right. Or, right. Yeah. <laughs> and there's a lot of that. right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So, so what, what kind of things would actually benefit women founders in Japan? Something that helped me, me was that I got access to Women's Startup Lab in Silicon Valley. Artie's program, yeah. Right. It was uh, five years ago, and there was no other serious startup acceleration programs in Japan either. So I took the chance to go to Silicon Valley and took her program. And there, I finally learned what the difference between small business and a startup is <laughs> or to get funds or how to become independent from your parent company, like how it's important to have your own stock, how to 
hire people. It's this is like kind of basic knowledge, but I had no access to it until I joined that program. So it is. I mean, no, the the Women's Startup Lab is a great program, but like all of the things you've mentioned, I mean, the information's out there. It's it's online. It's in in, in so so. I don't know. Was it was it like really beneficial it, to to have it in like a a a women's focused program? Was it like having role models or what was the difference? The difference was that I felt like I could be one. Like it was not something that was happening out there, but it was more like oh, now I feel like I could become a CEO. Finally, <laughs> you know what I mean. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's it's like to meet other founders from all around the world who are also female and also like in the tech field and all these things. I finally realized that oh, I maybe I could do this. Like maybe I could take this role and pursue my business or my career in this field instead of like. Trying to find some somebody else who could do the role. So, so is it that it, it wasn't so much the information? It was the fact that instead of seeing a bunch of I don't know Japanese guys in their late twenties, early thirties, it was seeing other women like role models. Was that right, really right. what kind of yeah role models and maybe the other startup founders in the same stage who had the similar issues or similar problems yeah like having the same people in the same batch was very very helpful for me and back then I didn't all the female meetups in Japan were for those people who wanted to start local pancake business so (laughs) family business so I felt like I had to fit into that or if I've been to a startup event if it felt like I, I didn't like fit in so yeah, it was the first time I felt like, oh, this this could be somewhere I could start my own business. So then in Japan, the most useful thing would be role models, a community of peers. Mm-hmm. I think so, yeah. They're having other people you could talk to and ask similar questions in the same stage. Like I have a lot of male startup CEO friends as well. So I talk to them as well. But for example, I don't go on a like a like a, I don't travel with them or I don't like I don't spend too much time with them. And but with female founders, it's more like we could like talk like all night without like 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 being in the pajamas and like you know talk about <laughs> talk about your business. You know what I mean? Yeah, I know it, it's it's not so much just uh, the business exchanging information. It's about feeling close and almost like a mentoring and like you feel safe enough to open up. Right, right, right. Exactly. Yeah, no, that makes a lot of sense. Mm-hmm. Well, listen, Machi, before I let you go, I want to ask you what I call my magic wand question. And that is, if I gave you a magic wand and I told you that you could change one thing about Japan, anything at all, um, the education system, the way people think about risk, the status of women in Japan, anything at all to make things better for startups in Japan, what would you change? One thing is that 
believing in successful globally first instead of success in Japan first and then go global. So start out with like a global mindset from the beginning? Totally, yeah. You know, that's something I hear a lot, not only from founders, but even from like city governments and national governments. Is that something you see changing? Do you think that founders are more thinking global or is it still very much Japan market focus? I think it's changing in the last few years, but there's still, well, we have this mindset where we think that we have to success in Japan first because that's less risk than going abroad. So why, why is it important to change that mindset? Uh, because、uh, you lose your chance to success globally while you're struggling in Japan. <laughs> you struggle anyway, so why not do it? Like... Well, no, but I, I hear that actually, and I, I agree with you.、Um, but one of the things, particularly VCs will say when they're trying to push a company towards that IPO track. They'll say, well, you know, expanding globally, it's complicated. It takes a lot of capital. Just, just focus on Japan. And when that's stable and safe, then you can go yeah, overseas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So,、mm. why is that a bad strategy?、Um, you just get old, you know, <laughs> <laughs> as a founder. <laughs> you start to lose the same passion, like, same motivation. So, that, that success in the Japanese market, that safety makes it less likely to take risks? I think so. That makes sense.、Mm-mm-mm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if you become successful enough in Japan, why go abroad and take more risk? And because of that, companies don't take risk to hire staffs with diversity background. Or, I don't know, they don't do a lot of things because of that. <laughs> Well, yeah, and I, I think it's diversity not only of staff, but if you go outside of Japan quickly, you very quickly understand what parts of your product and service are attractive overseas and what isn't. And it's always easier to fix things early on in the, in the company life cycle. Totally. Yeah, definitely. So that's why we have a team outside of Japan who are constantly communicating with the people who are submitting maps. Do you see that changing at all? Do you think founders are, are still too focused on Japan or are more looking I, I overseas? I don't think so. I think they're looking more into overseas, but there is also, there's always the language problem and also the funding problem. And if you get funding within Japan, it, like you said, the IPO track is there. I mean, I don't think it's a bad thing. And it's a great thing that if you become successful in Japan. But it's just that you have to really think about like going global at the same time. We were talking before about role models. You know, until now, all the successful companies had built up their business and IPO'd in Japan. But I think as we see more and more successful startups building businesses overseas,、yeah. more founders will follow、mm-hmm. that. I know, I know. So, yeah, and also. Yeah, having access to that kind of founders or to that community. And that's why I'm doing the Wise 24, because、uh, we need to connect with the, with the founders outside of Japan to be aware of what's happening around the world instead of just、um, talking with each other in Japan. 
Fantastic. Well, listen, Machi, thank you so much for, for sitting down with me virtually. Thanks so much. Thank you. And we're back. Crisis forces us to try new things. Let's face it. People don't really like change. Even the most vocal champions of disruption are always talking about the value of disrupting other companies' business models, not not their own. In general, we change when we're forced to change. And over the past few months, we've seen Japanese firms adopt work-from-home and teleconferencing after years or even decades of focus groups and research showing that work from home was simply not possible. But of course, it always was. And now that we're being forced to change and everyone knows it's possible, these same companies are starting to announce that they'll continue such programs, even after the coronavirus and lockdowns have passed. And as Machi explained... Strolley's pivot to VR was not so much a pivot, but something they had wanted their customers to try for a long time. The users love the online experience. It improves branding. It makes them more likely to visit the offline destination. And this, this is something that will not only continue after the coronavirus has passed but will become a standard part of the marketing toolkit for the travel and tourism industry. But of course, adopting new technology doesn't mean, or at least it shouldn't mean, throwing away the past. And that brings us back to Strolley's core appeal. That brings us back to maps. Now, I've always loved maps, not not Google Maps or Apple Maps. I mean, I mean those are awesome. But I mean older maps, paper maps, with all their inaccuracies, omissions, and exaggerations. In fact, I think we love these maps because of their inaccuracies. From the, the happy pastels of tourist city maps to the thick, high-contrast lines of political maps— to ancient navigation charts with unknown seas marked by the words, Here There Be Dragons. These maps tell us as much about the society that created them as they do about the world they supposedly represent. The uncluttered, consistent, universal layout of Google Maps or a road atlas is great for telling us where we are, but not why we're here. They say nothing about who we are and and our role in the story. And that's really the appeal of Strolley. It, It pushes the utility and the technology back where it belongs, behind the scenes. The user interface, no, no, the human interface, are the kinds of maps that we have used and loved for centuries. In a way, this is technology at its best. It's technology that helps us get where we're going without forgetting who we are. If you want to talk more about maps or female founders in Japan, Machi and I would love to hear from you. 
So come by DisruptingJapan.com slash show169, and let's talk about it. If you leave a comment, I guarantee Machi or I, or maybe both, will respond. And hey, if you get the chance, check us out on LinkedIn or Facebook. But even better, if you like the show, tell people about it. Disrupting Japan is my labor of love. It's free forever, and we have no advertising budget. People hear about the podcast because listeners like you enjoy it, and they tell their friends about it. But most of all, thanks for listening. And thank you for letting people interested in Japanese startups and innovation know about the show. I'm Tim Romero, and thanks for listening to Disrupting Japan.